Contending for the Faith, one verse at a time. Thanks for joining us at Truth Matters Church. Today we hear the second part of our look at Christ as the root of David who has overcome, as told in Revelation chapter 5. In what turns out to be an incredibly encouraging study, we get a glimpse into the praise and adoration we will all sing to the Father and Son when we one day stand in the throne room of heaven. Here is Pastor Alex Kataroha. The title of our study today is The Root of David Has Overcome, and this is part two of our study. We are in chapter five in this book of prophecy, and at this portion of the text, I would consider this the central theme of this vision. It is concerning the root of David who has overcome, which is the foundation of what's going on, the significance of that, and what it means, ultimately, not only for the heavenly hosts, but for us who believe. And a brief recap of what we've covered so far in chapter 5, we've covered seven verses. In verse 1, we learned about the sealed book or scroll with seven seals in the Father's hand, and we learned that the contents that are written in that book was mourning, lamentations, and woe. And this is supported in its immediate context because when the breaking of the first seal happens, there's going to be mourning, lamentations, and woe, at least the beginning of them. In verse 2, we were introduced to a strong angel who made a proclamation in all the heavenlies. And he was asking the question, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? In verse 3, it tells us that initially there was none found. And because of this, John himself mourned. In verse 5, one of the 24 elders encouraged John, telling him to stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. Hence, the central theme of this chapter and the title of our study the root of David, has overcome. In verse 6, John turns his attention to an equally important figure, to that of the one sitting on the throne, of a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. And we learned in that study that the text tells us that the seven horns and the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God, or seven angels, And these are angels that are sent out into all the earth under the authority of both the Father and the Lamb. In verse 7, which is the last verse we covered, the Lamb came and took the book out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. And we learn that this was a very significant moment, not only in the angelic realm, but in all of human history, because this, among other things, it solidified all the Scripture has spoken and foretold. Jesus is in fact the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And it is the Lamb who will judge all men, evil and holy, including judging Israel and the church. And that takes us now to verse 8. And what I'd like for us to do, since we intend to wrap up this chapter today, we'll go ahead and read the entire chapter, and then we'll pick it right up in verse 8. So let's begin our scripture reading, shall we? Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and I'll be reading from the NES. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne 
with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea And all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Quite a scene, isn't it? I've recapped pretty much all of this scene leading up to verse 7. So let's now pick it up in verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is fairly explanatory, self-explanatory. After the Lamb took the book out of the Father's hand, the 24 elders and four living creatures together fell down before the Lamb. I can't be helped but be drawn to when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want to reference this into this vision. John 18, beginning verse 3, writes, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas, also who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And the reason why I'm drawn to this particular passage is because when Jesus said, I am He, the Roman cohort, the officers, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and Judas, the entire company, when Jesus said the words, I am He, they all fell down before Him. And in our key verse, it's as if when the Lamb took the book from His Father's hand, He says, I am He. I am He who is worthy. Same result. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down before the Lamb. And this, in and of itself, is a fulfillment of a couple of familiar prophecies that I'm sure we're aware of. And I want to reference that. In Romans 14, when Paul was addressing the principles of conscience on how we are to exercise the Christian liberties that we have In Christ, he writes in verse 10, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. And when I I'm taken to this particular prophecy. Don't ask me how I kind of get this illustration, but maybe you can follow me. How many of us have been to a sporting event or have seen in a sporting event 
when there's a wave in the crowd. Someone needs to start the wave, right? But once the wave starts, it goes. May I suggest to us that the 24 elders and the four living creatures are starting a wave, beginning with them. And we're going to see there's going to be others that are going to join in this praise. But this will all lead to every knee will bow and every tongue shall give praise to God. But it begins with the 24 elders and the four living creatures. Here's another passage that speaks of the same thing. In Philippians 2, in the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, beginning in verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the truth is, because the Father exalted Christ and the Father granted Him His authority over all creation, that means all creation, including the angelic hosts and every man, must and will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is precisely why the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell before the Lamb. Back to our key verse. Also in verse 8, it says that the 24 elders and four living creatures each held a harp and golden bowls full of incense. So all 28 of them had a harp and golden bowls full of incense. There's no need to speculate as to what the harp and golden bowls mean because it is answered in this same verse, which are the prayers of the saints. I don't know if you've pondered this. What happens to your prayers when you pray? We just prayed and lifted up Brother Bob and Sister Victoria. Where does that prayer go? What this vision gives us some insight on is that this harp that each one of the 28 held with a golden bowl of incense are the prayers of the saints. What this vision tells us is that our prayers are being received, at least here by the 28. I'm not sure what your view on prayer is, but it has a purpose. And that God Almighty factors in the prayers of His people into His action. And it's as if these 28 are collecting them before the throne. Another way to say this is that when we pray, it matters and it counts. So let's not get into this fallacy, let go and let God. No. We are to pray unceasingly. But that prayer needs to be in accordance with the will of God. Meaning, our prayers in our heart of hearts, it shouldn't be centered on us necessarily. We're secondary. But our prayers should be focused on what would bring glory, honor, and adoration to our God. And this vision tells us more in verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, and I mentioned this before, I like to call these, they are heaven's worship team. And this worship team sang a new song. I want to talk about new song a little bit. And I'll admit, first time I blasted through this, he sang a new song. Here's what was said and kind of moved on. Wait. The Psalms had a lot to say about a new song. Several times in Scripture, 
it tells us of a singing of a new song. And it's mostly in the Psalms. And what I'd like us for you to do is I want to cross-reference these psalm passages that speaks of the singing of a new song. In Psalm 33.3, the psalmist wrote, Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Psalm 40, verse 3, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. You're taking notes? New song, based on Psalm 40, verse 3, is or equals song of praise. New song, song of praise. In Psalm 40, verse 3, which we just read, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. In Psalm 96.1, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. In Psalm 98.1, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory for Him. In Psalm 144, verse 9, I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon a harp of ten strings. I will sing praises to you. There's a little nugget here. In our passage, in our vision in Revelation 5, it tells us that the 28 are holding harps. doesn't tell us how many strings. It's based on Psalm 144, verse 9. May I propose to us it had ten strings on it. In Psalm 149, verse 1, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, and His praise in the congregation of the godly ones. There was only one other mention apart from the Psalms that speaks of a new song in the Old Testament. And it was actually a psalm recorded in the book of Isaiah 42, verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, sing His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them. And then the only other mention of a new song, apart from the Old Testament, is later in Revelation, chapter 14, verse 3. It says there, And they, speaking of the 144,000, sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, and the elders, and no one can learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. So here's a takeaway. When a new song is sung, it was never sung before. Does anyone want to guess who the songwriter is for such new songs? I'll give you a hint. For example, David was under the inspiration of him. The Holy Spirit. When a new song is sang and the words are given of that song, it is given by the Spirit of God that gives glory, praise, and honor to the Godhead. The lyrics of all the new songs glorify God and all His handiwork, His dealings, His judgments, and His salvation. Now back to our key verse. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So these four living creatures and the 24 elders who sang this new song, they were, as I mentioned, also holding a harp. You know what this means? That the harp isn't just symbolism. They in fact played the harp and sang a new song with it. It still baffles me. If there's any interpretation out there that says the 24 elders is anything but 24 elders, you're going to come across a lot of problems in this scene in heaven. How can the Old Testament play the harp? How can anything other than actual beings play a harp? And I want to say it's with 10 strings. And not only did these 28 sing a new song with these harps, this verse tells us the lyrics. Worthy are you to take the book 
and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I just want to say something briefly concerning Christian songs. There's a lot of different songs out there, a lot of different genres of Christian music or lyrics. But the more we get engrossed into the Scripture, the most appropriate songs are the ones that have Scripture. For Scripture, which is inspired by the Spirit of God Himself, what better way to sing praise back to Him than by taking His Word, proclaiming it, and believing it, and singing it back to Him. Sadly, a lot of songs in contemporary Christianity today speak no Scripture. In passing, it'll speak some truth, some gospel, but its foundation, the lyrics of the song, isn't inspired by the Spirit of God Himself. Songs written, inspired by His own Word, are the ones that the Spirit of God that's in us can connect and join in the assembly of praise to our God. And by the way, in verse 9, when John says, and they sang a new song, and here is the lyrics. I did my checking. Was there anywhere else in the Scripture that spoke about the Lamb as if slain is worthy to break the seals and purchase for God with His blood among men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation? Guess what? This was in fact a new song. So none of the other song passages, the new song passages that we just covered from Psalms to Isaiah, even later in Revelation to the 144,000, this song is unique and it was new. And it's, these were the lyrics. This song declared that the Lamb purchased for God, His Father, with His, the Lamb's blood, men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Collectively, the Jews and Gentiles. And this is where Paul, he was given this great privilege to proclaim. He called it the mystery of Christ. And from here, I want to cross-reference Ephesians chapter 3. Paul wrote there, beginning in verse 1, he says, For this reason, the reason being God making Jews and Gentiles into one new man. He says, For this reason, because God is making Jews and Gentiles into one new man. He goes, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Here's the mystery. To be specific, that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel, of which I was made a prisoner according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working power the working of His power. Now with this in mind, I want to come back to verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So this new song that the 28 sang, it included included praising the Lamb for purchasing for God with His blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nations and collectively Jews and Gentiles. So this helps us also in future reference and study. When you see the phrase when every tribe and tongue and people and nation. If you're wondering what group is that? At least when it's concerning the people of God, it's the one new man. 
consisting of Jews and Gentiles, of every tribe and tongue and people and nations. So whenever we see this all used together, we know that it's speaking of the Jews and Gentiles collectively. But here's my point. The mystery of Christ that Paul's gospel declared, it's the same lyrics in this new song. When Paul says, let me, I was given this great privilege of this mystery of Christ that it wasn't foretold up to now. And here's that mystery that the Gentiles too are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. And Christ purchased us with His blood. And He has a specific purpose in mind. Verse 10, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So the beginning of verse 10 says, you have made them. Who's you? Christ, the Lamb. Have made them. I just went through it. Who's them now? Who's them? Exactly. The Lamb made them, collectively, the redeemed Jews and Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Why did Christ... Jesus save you? Why did Christ Jesus save me? Why did Christ Jesus save through faith the preaching of, in the preaching of the gospel collectively Jews and Gentiles? What was his purpose? To be a kingdom and priests to our God. And John stated this at the opening of this book. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 6. And when we were there, we covered this in depth. Kingdom and priests is, was the title of that study. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I've already taught this, but I want to say this. The reason Christ purchased us with His blood was to make us a kingdom and priest to our God and to reign with Him on earth as the Father promised David through the Davidic covenant. Our Lord Jesus Christ saved us so that when He returns to rule and reign in His kingdom, that we can come with Him. We being the redeemed Jews and Gentiles that the Father Himself is making into one new man. And Peter speaks of this very fact. In 1 Peter 2, Verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me say this another way. Just like the Abrahamic covenant, it wasn't just to Abraham and his physical descendants that the covenant that God made with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant as the gospel and the preaching of the Word of God and the New Testament authors proclaim that Gentiles too may partake and are part of this Abrahamic covenant and when the Father made a covenant with David that he will always have a son to sit on his throne, this Davidic kingdom, Gentiles too are part of that promise and part of the Father's plan. The Gentiles, along with the redeemed Jews, the redeemed Gentiles and redeemed Jews, are all part of these promises that God made even with Abraham and with David. And that's what this new song declared. There's more truths on this verse and I want to try to draw them out. He says, you have made them. And he also says, they will reign. 
upon the earth. You have made them past tense. The Lamb already purchased for us our salvation. Believers are presently considered a kingdom and priest to God the Father. If you're not feeling too great about yourself, having a bad day, bad week, bad month, bad year, bad health, could the, or should I say, allow the truth in this particular verse and be reminded that you are considered a kingdom and priests to our God and Father and that we will reign upon the earth. And this was mentioned in the promise to Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 26. Our Lord said there, He goes, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I have also received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. So here's the truth. Christ accomplished what the Father planned for him to accomplish in terms of our salvation. And us ruling and reigning with him and him giving us authority over the nations. This is future prophecy. And this will come to fruition when Messiah returns to reign on earth in the Davidic kingdom, and we all the saints will be raised to rule and reign with him as the scripture, including the promise Jesus made to Thyatira, promised we would. This is the mystery of the gospel. Part of it, I should say, that not only are we saved from our sins, but we are part of God's future plans when our Lord Jesus Christ comes and returns and we will be with him. And I want to see a brief conjecture here. I don't know where sometimes the spirit in me, my mind goes, but whenever these come up, I do want to talk it out. In 1 Corinthians 6, and I think we're, we're probably familiar with this. It's probably been some time maybe since we've last heard this. But in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul there was rebuking lawsuits against believers, he writes in verse 1, He goes, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know the saints will judge the world? Who are the saints? Newsflash, you and me. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Here's where Paul's getting at. The context here, you have believers suing believers and taking their case before the ungodly or the unbelieving. And Paul's saying, you're doing that? You're going to judge the world. And you can't judge these trivial things? He goes on to say, verse 3, do you not know that we, I put this here in parentheses, the saints will judge angels how much more matters of this life? The saints are going to judge the world and angels. The saints, you and I, made up of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, are going to judge the world. Doesn't this hopefully help make the promise of Thyatira clearer to him who overcomes and keeps my deeds until the end? I will give him authority over the nations. And that he will also grant us authority when he says he gives us the morning star. The only place where the saints can judge the world and angels is in the millennial kingdom of Christ. There's no other logical place that the scripture tells us. When is this going to come to pass? When Paul writes here that the saints will judge the world. When is that going to happen? There has to be a time and place for it. And it has to be before, obviously, the great white throne judgment. So this is all part of the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, Paul's gospel, and the rest of the Scripture. I'm not sure how this is going to be administered as far as the saints judging the world or judging angels. 
but we can be sure that we will be there. If you ask me, what might be taken into consideration? Did your head get cut off for the sake of the gospel? If you did, maybe you'll have higher rank to the rest of us. So perhaps the martyrs from the beginning of the institution of the church until the end of the church age that have died for their faith in Christ, perhaps when it comes to judging the world and angels, that somehow they will pull rank over someone else. So that's where my mind goes sometimes. So let's continue. Verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. I'm going to call this out. He says, then I looked. I do want to say this, and I've said this before, that the book of Revelation is to be understood, at least the visions are to be understood sequentially. It's not that straightforward. The visions that come after the other are to be understood sequentially. But sometimes one vision goes to the end before the next vision. It can get a little confusing, but I'll try my best with your prayers and the Spirit's help to not lose sight of that. But he says, then I looked. So the vision, here's what's next in the vision. He says, he saw many angels around the throne. Not only was the four living creatures and the 24 elders in this vision, but he saw many angels around the throne. And John says, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. I want to talk about that a little bit. Myriads is myrias. And the highest or the largest number readily available in the Greek is 10,000 or myrias. That's the biggest number in Greek. And thousands is chilius. And it has the same meaning in the Greek. It's thousands. But here's the idea of myrias, myrias, and chilius, chilius. It's that it's innumerable to count. He can't count them. It's indefinite. There was myriads and myriads, or chillis of chillis. There's thousands upon thousands. It's as if, you know, I think for some of us, if you've gone to, let's say, a sporting event, like for example, I had the opportunity to go to the 49er playoff game against Dallas. I couldn't count how many were in that stadium. They told me it was 70,000, but I'm not going to, I can't count 70,000. I'll just say there's myriads and myriads, or chillis of chillis. This phrase tells us some pretty neat truths. For one, the throne room in heaven is pretty big. How many can we fit in this room? Maybe 75? Oh, 94. This posted there on the wall. (laughs) So the throne room is a lot bigger than this because you have myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands that surrounded the throne and the 24 thrones. And who were I'm drawn to? And this helps explain when Jesus, he could have prevented his arrest. He said he could have appealed to his father and at once put at his disposal, he said, more than 12 legions of angels. By the way, a legion, 6,000. You multiply that by 12, 72,000. Niner game was about 72,000. Imagine that. All angels, at least. He says, more than 12 legions of angels. There's at least 72,000 angels around the throne. That's a lot of angels. And all the hosts of heaven, they began saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I'm going to take a pause there. Did you know this whole time we're just praising? This whole time. You're like, man, Alex, can we get application here? What's more applicable than praising God? If there's a tendency and says, like, well, why are we going through all this? You might want to do a, a spiritual inventory. Your purpose and my purpose is to bring glory, honor, and praise to our God. And this whole time, that's what we've been doing. We're just getting with the program. But all the hosts of heaven, they began 
saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So by this time, Jesus already took the sealed book from his Father's hand. And it's as if when he took that book, all of heaven, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and the at least 72,000 of those angels, they confirmed the Father's choice. They openly confessed that Jesus alone was worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing. Not only does the Scripture confirm Christ, all of heaven confirms Christ. And the time will come where even in the, those who joined the angelic rebellion too will acknowledge Christ. And I'm reminded when Jesus cast out a demon and he was asked by the demon, when the, the demon spoke to him, he's like, are you going to, if you come before the appointed time, he goes, you know, can you command to send me to the pigs? That spirit acknowledged who Jesus was. And he's coming. Satan knows who Jesus is and even tried to tempt him those 40 days and 40 nights. And we know the story. He can try all he wants. He can change who Christ is, his deity as the Son of God, and that he is the Father's choice and that all the angels confirm. I'm telling you, this all makes sense. When he has the seven stars in his right hand, which are seven angels over the seven churches, Christ has authority over them. The seven spirits, which are before the throne of God, that he will send out into all the earth, those seven angels are under the authority of Christ, the Lamb, and the Father. When he says, I have the keys of death in Hades, and I propose to us that there is an actual angel named Death, and Hades, who is over those places. He has authority over them. He has authority over all of the angels. And these 72,000 at least, these myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands, all said the same thing. In verse 13, And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. In verse 13, it says, every created thing. I want to ask us a question. Does this include you and me? I like that. How about our dogs? Are they a created thing? We just read, what was that, Isaiah or was it Isaiah or one of the Psalms concerning the new songs even said the islands will praise him. Rocks will cry out. And I gave us a hint. Every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. You have an eye, you will see him when that moment comes. I have an eye, you have an eye. Behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So yes, Every created thing means what it says. Every created thing. So yes, you and I are included. We're going to say, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That time will come for you and me. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Someone needs to take us to the throne. Can you go to the throne? On your own? Who's going to have to take you? Christ. When Christ, and we go to be with Him, He's going to take us before the throne. And He's going to confess us before His Father. Then we're going to say to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Our time will come. I'm going to ask us some, hopefully it should be obvious by now. It says, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Is it the same person? Speak up. No. Good. Who is the one who sits on the throne? And who is the Lamb? The Father and the Lamb. The Father and the Son. They're not the same person. And I mentioned this before, and you're probably tired of hearing it, but I think a lot of contemporary Christianity has blurred the lines between the Father and the Son unintentionally. 
but they are two different persons. They have two even descriptive titles and designations. The Father is not the Lamb. He is the one who sits on the throne. And in this vision, Christ Jesus is the Lamb. They're not the same. So with that, I say amen. Both the Father and the Son are equally praised by all of creation in the vision of this prophecy. I'm just drawn now to Paul's writings in Romans 8 when he says that creation itself waits in eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God so that they can praise the Him who sits on the throne and the Lamb who are His redeemed. He says creation itself is waiting in eager expectation. It's as if creation, that's every created thing, is even waiting for the revealing of the elect from whom the Lamb has purchased with His blood. And because of this, the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Whenever the Father and the Lamb are praised, the four living creatures say, Amen. And when the four living creatures say, Amen, the 24 elders fall down before the Father and before the Lamb and worship them both. I'm telling you, these four living creatures, you can see that they're the ones that start the wave technically, that spiritual wave that I'm talking about. Because when they say, Amen, the wave happens. The 24 elders also fall down before the Lamb and before the throne and worship them both. The only being that angels or man can worship is the Father and the Son, period. No other being is worthy of our praise, adoration, and worship. And we praise and worship them for their role, their active role, not only in creation, but in our salvation. So with that, in closing, you still with me? Last week in part one of our study, I asked us a couple of questions about what it means when John wrote, the root of David has overcome, as to open the book and its seven seals. I asked us the first question in part one of our study. What did Jesus overcome? Donna, you got this. Jesus overcame the world. We got that part of the question right. The second part of the question is this. How do we share in it? If Jesus overcame the world, how do we share in that victory? So my question is, how do we, the people of God, comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles, how do you and I share in Christ's victory? And I'm going to give us a hint here because John said it in his epistle. 1 John 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. It is by faith that we share in Christ's victory over the world. Do you believe that Christ is who He said He was? Do you believe the testimony of Scripture? Do you believe here now the testimony of Scripture as recorded for us in this great vision of the all of the angelic hosts do we believe that christ was the lamb slain and that he purchased for us to make he purchased us with his blood to make us kingdom and priests of his god so that we can rule and reign with him when he returns it is by faith that we share in that victory over the world it is by faith that we will overcome sin and satan How do we overcome the enemy of our souls? And how do we overcome 
sin that has plagued every man and every woman. It is by faith. It is by faith that we along with Christ, Paul said this, will crush Satan under our feet. It is by faith that we will join in and sing the new song, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It is by faith that we will praise the Father who sits on the throne and to the Lamb at His right hand. I put that there. If you were to ask me where was Christ positioned? The Father's right hand. And give blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. It is by faith that we will join the myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands and join all of creation in unending praise and worship to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is by faith that we will rule and reign with our Christ and that we will judge the nations and angels under His authority that He's now given us. That takes us to the end of chapter 5. It's as if, now after all of this buzz, all of this activity of praise and worship, the spiritual wave as I called it, kind of settles down now. And we're going to be turned now to the next part of the vision, or the next vision of this book, where the Lamb, now holding this book sealed with seven seals. I want to say, he probably said, I am he, and broke the first one. And we will see what that's all about. Amen. Thanks for joining us at Truth Matters Church today. And we deeply appreciate you studying along with us. We hope you were blessed by this very encouraging message as Pastor Alex unpacked this portion of Revelation. Next up, we open chapter 6 and begin looking at the seven seals and what those will mean for believers and the world as Christ prepares for His return. We encourage you to check out our website for hundreds of hours of expository teaching, truthmatterschurch.org. You can also find information on joining our study in person or online. Again, that is truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.